If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Sadly, I think what happened is most Muslims started to define themselves as being against the West. So if the West was going to be individualistic, well, we were going to be collectivist. So if the West was going to be uh, logical, we were, we're going to be excessively emotional and angry. And that might not have been spelt out, but it, it came down to if the West is going to disregard history, well, we are going to reimagine a, a perfect form of history. That was Ed Hussein talking to Tom Holland about the history of Islam and the challenges it faces in the modern world. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In each issue of our global history title, BBC World Histories. We feature an interview piece where the author of a new book discusses the content with a fellow expert. For the latest edition, the subject under scrutiny has been the global history of Islam, which is the subject of a new work by the author Ed Hussein. He was joined for this discussion by Tom Holland, a historian, author and broadcaster who wrote a book in 2012 
entitled In the Shadow of the Sword, about the emergence of Islam in late antiquity. Here for the podcast, you'll have a chance to hear some of their discussion. Hi, my name is Tom Holland, and I am here with Ed Hussain, author of The Islamist, who has uh, a fascinating new book out, The House of Islam, A Global History. Um, And I have met up with him in the heart of Westminster to talk about it. Um, And Ed, rather than begin at the beginning, I want to begin at the end. And your very last paragraph, and I hope I'm not you know, betraying any spoilers here for, for, for your readers. But you end it by saying, the house of Islam is on fire, which is a very dramatic image. Mm. Why do you think the house of Islam is on fire? In what way? It's a great question, Tom, and uh, a delight to speak with you about this important subject because you've written about it and thought about it yourself over the years. And, and the main reason why the house of Islam is on fire is because there are people, arsonists, reside within the house. And these are people who are adherents to a form of thinking and actors in line with that thinking. And those actors include the government of Iran, uh, extreme Islamist organizations such as the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, Hezbollah, and uh, extreme Salafis. So that entire category of people have reduced Islam to being a political, confrontational ideology. So that's why the House of Islam is on fire. It's uh, due to the activities and the political programme of the aforementioned entities. But why why do you think that they're doing it? I mean, what is feeding these flames? So this is where the the book, I think, is very useful in trying to explain the the, the 100-year humiliation that most Muslims felt throughout from Napoleon's invasion, if we have to put a specific date on it, in 1798, I think, down to the the First World War. So that period of about 120 years was a very, very painful, humiliating, uh, disrespectful uh, period for Muslims because it didn't chime with who they were as a people, didn't didn't reflect their history, nor did it... um, uh, speak to what Muslims are supposed to be, uh, a warrior people with the upper hand globally. I mean, Bernard Lewis talks about that brilliantly, that for, for a thousand years, Muslims were the global superpower. And now suddenly they were reduced to losing uh, uh, imperial territory, losing the technological race. That 120 years or so put Muslims completely out of joint as to who they were historically and what they expected to be. And as a result of that loss of empire, the Ottoman decline and you know, the formation of 22 plus states on the corpse of the Ottomans, that led to the formation of, uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood um, and an Indian subcontinent, Jamaat Islami, and then a whole range of other more extreme and sometimes violent organizations. So you asked why, I think there's a long explanation. But I, I mean, I absolutely agree with you that that um, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt, I mean, even if symbolically is an absolutely key event in this, because up until that point, kind of Islamic civilization had been a world unto itself, hadn't it? It hadn't really had any cause to take much interest in what the Franks in the yeah. barbaric reaches of Western Europe were up to. And then suddenly you get Napoleon crashing in with his hot air balloons and his chemistry sets and his philologists. And... The Islamic world has really to wake up to what is going on in Europe. To what extent do you think that the need to kind of integrate uh, 
Western technology, but even more, I suppose, Western ideas has helped or hindered the formation of the kind of Islam that you would like to see? It's the ideas that you mentioned and the battle of ideas that's key. You know, on the on the technology front, uh, whether it's to do with scientific innovation in relation to medicine or the advanced uh, uh, arms that uh, the, the French troops possessed, I mean, you see the Ottomans trying to emulate um, you know, French military attire or the, the latest uh, you know, guns and whatnot that were, that were available in the West. But so the, the imitation wasn't a problem, but they could not understand what was driving Western innovation and what was driving uh, the European thought process. And behind that was two or three big ideas. And those two or three big ideas are still with us. And those two or three big ideas uh, haven't had the necessary impact on the Muslim world today. One is the pursuit of complete individualism, that, you know, that Napoleon was not the first time the Muslim world encountered, uh, you talked about the Franks or the, or the Crusaders, you know, there was sustained uh, two-way conversation for at least uh, 200 years. But why was it that the Crusaders were not able to leave behind a legacy that troubled the Muslim world? One of the reasons for that is the Crusaders did not bring a, did not bring a world view to the Muslim world that was in complete uh, uh, contradistinction to where Muslims were. You know, because, because they were Christian. They were Christians. They had a holy book and, you know, the, the fight was over Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And the fight was a holy fight of some sort. And, they, and, and both Muslims and Christians, whether they, they, they be Orthodox or otherwise, broadly agreed on, 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 on you know, man life in the universe. But Napoleon and the French Revolution brought something that was a, that was a, that was a shock to the, the Muslim mind, and it still remains a shock to the Muslim mind. And that's one of the reasons why we find it so hard to reconcile. Um, individualism is one uh, idea, uh, and the, the second is the pursuit of rational thought, wherever that conclusion led to, uh, independent of religion or tradition. That was hard for Muslims to absorb because you know, most Muslim communities, the tribe is important, the ummah is important, the family is much more important than it was, say, for Rousseau or for Voltaire. Um, and the, the third is that for the French revolutionaries and by extension those who aspired to be more like France in Europe, history was a burden. History was something that, would, that, was, uh, you know, that, that had to be forcefully removed. Ties with the Catholic Church had to be ended. Robespierre spoke about a new calendar, a new birth. Now, for, for most Muslims, history is sacred. History isn't something that was lived over there and is a burden, but history is something that, you know, is among us and ought to be revived. And our best days were, were the past, as opposed to the French Revolution or the Enlightenment mindset that says our best days are yet to come. So those ideas of individualism versus history versus the, the Muslim collectivist thought in contrast to where uh, Europe was heading and firmly places itself now, I mean, that's where the real challenges are. And sadly, I think what happened is most Muslims started to define themselves as being against the West. So if the West was going to be individualistic, well, we were going to be collectivist. So if the West was going to be uh, logical, we're, we're going to be excessively emotional and angry. And that might not have been spelt out, but it, it came down to if the West is going to disregard history, well, we are going to reimagine a, a perfect form of history. Um, and it, it boiled down to a, a, a crude competition and rejecting everything that the West stood for 
at the same time trying to embrace what the West had become. There was a there was a strange love hate relationship, and that's still at play. And uh, you know, in, in 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 direct response to your question, what what should have happened is to, to understand that even within Muslim tradition, there is a strong precedent for individualism and empiricist thought and being critical of history and looking to the future, not necessarily imagining a perfect past. Whereas all of that tradition within Islam, you know. Uh, take, for example, the decriminalization of homosexuality in, in, in uh, the, the Ottoman Empire in 1857. Now, for whatever reason, the Ottomans were 120 years ahead of the rest of uh, the West. And here I include the Ottomans as being part of the West, you know, being based out of Constantinople. But they decriminalized homosexuality. That was supported by Al-Azhar and other prominent um, uh, Muslim uh, muftis and uh, thought leaders, because it was seen to be an individual act between individuals and, and, and God and not for the state to be involved in. And that's revolutionary. Rather than build on that thought process, uh, what followed was uh, a conscious rejection of everything that the West stood for. I, I, I wonder, though, whether there, is, that there aren't kind of further dimensions to what made the West threatening to Islam as it had classically been understood that actually evolved from... Christian notions. And one obvious one would be the notion of the secular, which emerges over the course of the Christian Middle Ages and is particularly refined by Protestantism. And you begin your book by saying that the word religion, the English word religion, is inadequate to, to cope with the, the nature of Islam because what religion has come to mean in English is this notion of something that is distinct from the rest of society, so that you have the secular and then you have religion, and that it is something that is private and it's kind of, you know, it's the individual faith, the individual believer and his relationship or her relationship with God. Um, I mean, that notion of the secular is something that because Western power was so global in scope has kind of been enshrined across the entire world as something that is normative, as something that that has become a mark of modernity. I mean, has that been a, a, a particular problem for Muslims, do you think? It, it's been a particular problem for the arsonists, the, 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 the Islamists, the jihadists, the, uh, the group of people that want to make their version of Sharia state law and impose that reading of Sharia on everybody else. For them, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the word secular... Uh, is anathema. And it, it, it's also bolstered by the fact that the West is secular, therefore we must be the opposite to whatever uh, uh, to, to whatever the West is. And that, that's why we see uh, the, the Iranians or the, the Taliban or others trying to carve out a different space. But, I mean, to paraphrase Bill Clinton, I, I firmly believe that there's nothing wrong with Islam that can't be fixed by what's right with Islam. In other words, there's 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 a strong secular tradition within Islam that can be drawn on to make the argument for. So, a, so what is that secular tradition? What is that? Uh, uh, so that reaches you, back. Yeah. To so, you, so you you take uh, Islam's primary sources in the Quran. There are verses such as La ikraha fi din. There's no compulsion in religion. There's a verse uh, that says Lakum dinukum waliyadin to you your religion to me mine. Uh, in the very early days, the Prophet Muhammad allowed for various religious denominations, including pagans and Jews and Christians, to observe their 
religion freedom that, without imposing it. But that's not entirely it. the same as the, the modern understanding of the secular, mm-hmm. is it? Because be, because the modern understanding of the secular is a space in which religion full stop is removed, right, so in which everyone is kind of, you know, Muslims, Christians, Hindus are all kind of shoved to the corner. And then you have a, a neutral space in the middle. And I, de- I, de- I don't think that Islamic civilization really sustained an idea of there being a neutral space within the caliphate. Everything that's uh, in in the modern world and associated with modernity, by definition, doesn't stand the test of anything that was developed in antiquity. I mean, it's it's just what it is, right? Modernity is a reaction to various ideas and movements that, that have reached us from antiquity. But what I'm saying is that there are principles and ideas within Islam that can be applicable to the modern world. Uh, you know, the, the Prophet famously saying, you know, when people asked him questions about this world, uh, that you know best about the affairs of this world. Now, you're right, it, that, that doesn't give us French laicity, but what it does give us is principles and ideas with which we can work. Um, now, what I find fascinating at the moment is out in countries such as Tunisia, there's a vibrant debate going on as to whether the kind of secularism that you highlighted, Tom, that whether that can work. And the answer is definitely no. But they increasingly look towards what they call Anglo-Saxon pluralism or secularism here in the UK and also in, 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 in the US, where there's no hostility towards religion. Uh, and whereas the state is, yes, religiously neutral, but citizens are allowed to be publicly pious. And it's that tension, I think, that's a major fault line across the Middle East today. So my contention is that you can find evidence and thought and principles in early Islam to support a a development of a fully modernised secular state today without compromising the individual's piety. I I mean, I suppose that what um, what, what we might call um, a a kind of more hardcore Muslim, um, more radical Muslim, would say to that that you are putting the cart of your kind of Western liberal instincts before the horse of what classical Islam was and that you are therefore altering it, changing it, diluting it, making it something that it wasn't originally. Would you recognise the force of that criticism or...? Not for a moment, not for a moment, because I think those who make that criticism are the ones who have... Uh, lit the fire on the House of Islam. I think what I am articulating is a renaissance of the early uh, Muslim way of being that to be a a pious Muslim is an individual act. Uh, Yes, there are what we call mu'amalat or more interactional and public dealings. I accept that. But ultimately... uh, you know, there's a, there's a famous incident where the Prophet Muhammad looks at, um, at a man and says, that's a man of paradise. And his companions say, well, we've never seen him at a mosque. We don't know of any pious acts that he does. Why is he a man of paradise? And one companion goes and follows this person, stays with him for, for three nights and says, I haven't seen you do anything that confirms the, the, the Prophet Muhammad's claim that you're a man. Of, well, what is it that you do? Because what this individual was doing was secretive, was worshipping God at night quietly without being seen to be pious. Now, there are these very strong traditions that we've got to lean on in order to achieve what it means to be a Muslim in the modern world. And that's why I say it's a renaissance rather than in any way for deforming or reforming Islam. Far and, from it. and it is, I mean, it is the struggle to 
cope with being, let's call it religious, although we've talked about the inadequacy of that as an adjective, in, in the modern world, which of course is not remotely exclusive to Islam. I mean, this is, a, in a sense, is a challenge that, that Christians had to face long before Muslims did. Uh, you know, it was it was Notre Dame that was being converted from a cathedral into a shrine to, yes. to, to reason in the French Revolution long That's before right. uh, Muslims had to had to cope with Napoleon turning up in, um, in, in, in Cairo. And so as a result, there is a sense in which if you are a, a believer, if you are a, a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu, and you're faced with the manifold challenges that modernity represents to traditional paradigms of faith, you really have, I mean, just to be very reductive, you have two choices. One is that you go with the grain of modernity, which I suppose is what is what you are doing. It's what liberals in, 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 in Christian churches and reform Judaism and, and, and so on do. And the other is to, is to take the fundamentalist option. And as you'll know, fundamentalism was originally applied to a kind of Protestant reaction to Darwinism and to all the kind of appurtenances of modernity. I mean, essentially the problem for Muslims, as for everyone else, is that you may have a sense of, of, of how your faith was in the past, where it wasn't challenged by, you know, modernity. Mm. But you, we can't get back to that. Whether we whether whether we're whether we're liberal believers or whether we're fundamentalist believers, we're equally you know it, the past is gone. We yeah. can't get back to it. Yeah. But the past also lives on. The past lives on in my recital of the Quran. The past lives on in my upholding the the, the, the teachings of the great philosophers and the great prophets of the past. Uh, I, but you see, I was I was very struck in in your book the. That it's beautifully articulated your love of of poetry, you know, your love of the great Persian poets and Rumi and Hafez and um, the the poets of of Al Andalus, and I was thinking that you know this 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 is a hymn of love to to a great civilization. It's it, it's not just a hymn of love to to what we would call a religion. It's a hymn of love to a civilization. It's it's the beauty of the of the poets, of the architecture, of this extraordinary civilization that simply didn't have to cope with you know anything that lay outside it. So in a sense, it's it's a bit like you know me kind of wistfully citing Milton or Dunn, you know, in memoriam of a vanished sense of of, of, of Christian faith, isn't it? I mean, it's very I mean, you were mourning a civilization rather than a religion. I see. I, 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 hats off to you for capturing the essence of the book. I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a hymn of love, but I don't think I'm mourning it. I, if anything, you know, I, I think I'm genuinely resuscitating its spirit. You know, it, it doesn't have to take the form of the uh, of Alhamra. It doesn't have to take the form of the Blue Mosque or the Taj Mahal for that matter, because those were all external manifestations. You know, that inner comfort, serenity, beauty, meaning in the modern world must take different uh, manifestations. And the big question is, well, what is that manifestation today? And that's the answer that we haven't provided yet. Well, what does being modern and Muslim mean today? How, how does it manifest? Well, where are the where are the great artistic achievements of the modern Muslim world? And there what we're seeing is too much mimicking going on and not enough native expression of 
beauty in Jakarta or in Dubai or in Doha or in Riyadh or even in Delhi or Dhaka or Karachi or Lahore. We, we haven't seen that, and, and, and nor have we seen it here in the West. And that's what worries me is that we've, we're losing that spirit that provides that beauty. And uh, in, in Andalusia, as well as Hafez's poetry. You know, by the way, someone like Hafez, you, you, you mentioned Hafez, and uh, there's a chapter in the book that talks about Hafez's. I mean, he's a man, uh, and, and he's talking about making love with God. And this is in the yeah. 1200s. And then he's yeah. saying, you've left me with a child, and that child is my soul. Now, and, and today... You know, we're shocked that there's that there's this uh, kind of uh, homosexual. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of you know, you're wonderful about about the Sufi tradition, and the Sufi tradition, uh, certainly in the in the modern West, has been the one that has most appealed to non-Muslims, really, as well. Um, <laughs> on the hippie trail, but that's the majority the of Sufi. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. the majority. That's that that is yeah. normal mainstream default Islam, and the evidence for that is you go into any village, any town, any city in the Muslim world today, and you see a thousand-year-old shrines. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You, you you begin with the life of Muhammad, the exact you know his his his, his yes the, the revelation to him of the Quran. You know what I'm going to say now. <laughs> this is this is subtitled a history, yeah. but it's not really history, is it? I mean, you are you are giving the received account of of Muhammad's life. That is that is a kind of it, it, it's the traditional Muslim understanding. You're Tom of it. Holland, and you're famous for refuting that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. So, but, but, you know, but, I mean, you're you're more than welcome to refute it, and you should, and you should bring the the rigor of the the, the, the modern historical methodology to it, and make your argument. But I have also had the good fortune of studying at SOAS with uh, Gerald Horting, and the entire kind of Wandsborough Crone tra- tradition was put to me. 
And I, I respect that historical criticism, but at the end of the day, I mean, academic history is a relatively modern innovation. And people but, but, who are... But it is part of what makes modernity so threatening to belief, isn't it? No, I mean, um, I, I, I've, I've studied that whole tradition from, as I say, Crony and others. And I, I mean, I'm a huge admirer of Bernard Lewis, for example. But I, but I also think that history is also received wisdom. History is also what... Muhammad and his companions said he said history is also how that's been passed down through the generations to us. I think that that's also valid and it's also important. Um, I'm not saying that there, there there weren't excesses in some of the layering of history, undoubtedly, and that's where I think the academic rigor is useful for us. But at the same time, it is history, uh, and, and it's probably more living and meaningful history to a believer than it is to someone who spends time approaching it as a as just stones and pottery and uh, in, in pursuit of uh, manuscripts. Well, it's kind of interesting because you have, you, I mean, you have a, a really intriguing line about the Hadith sayings of Muhammad, which kind of provide the fabric of traditional Islamic understanding of what God wants and, and, and what man's relationship to God should be. And you say of these, you say, very little thought is given to the fact that the Hadiths were written so long after the Prophet's passing which, of course, is something I would absolutely agree with. And, and, and my take on that would be that they're most unlikely to have actually come from the mouth of the prophet himself. Um, I, but, but I assume that's not what you're saying. You're saying that, I mean, it's, I, to, to be rude, it seemed to me that, that that any hadith with which you personally disagreed with, you you were kind of saying, well, this is this is unreliable. This is this is not to be trusted. <laughs> would that be unfair? Yeah, somewhat. I, I, I've struggled with hadith over the years. And I've struggled with them because, you know, the the Quran describes the Prophet as rahmatullil alameen, a mercy unto mankind or to, or, to, or to the universe. And then you come across claims of hadith where the Prophet was allegedly violent. Uh, you have illogical hadith about, you know, if a, if a fly drops into your drink and there's one wing... Uh, in the drink, dip the other wing in, for in the other wing is the antidote to the poison. I mean, completely illogical uh, sayings. So um, the early Muslims uh, of the Mu'tazila tradition and others also had deep reservations about hadith. There's a famous incident where the second caliph forbids many of the uh, companions of the Prophet at even attempting to write down hadith, tadween al-hadith, there's an entire science around it. My issue really is that We've lost that critical approach uh, among today's Muslims when it comes to Hadith literature in particular, because it was written uh, at least 120 years after the Prophet. So but, it's, it's but bringing my understanding is, is that, that there were, you know, that, that, that absolutely scholars um, back in the early centuries of Islam appreciated that there was the risk of fakes going mm. in and fabrications, but that there was a science for evaluating this and that there were authoritative collections which were compiled and, and that it was, you know, it has always been accepted that these collections essentially are to be relied upon. Um, so isn't the approach of, of, of saying, well, actually, I, I, you know, I don't like this one, this this is probably unreliable. I mean, isn't the risk there that you're tugging on a thread that, that risks pulling the whole tapestry apart? And, uh, not for a minute am I saying that, if, you know, if one doesn't like a particular hadith, it's not um, reliable. Uh, my argument is something different, and that is, in, in classical Islam, uh, those who collected hadith were known as pharmacists. Um, and those who issued edicts 
were known as doctors. So the problem today is that we've all become doctors and pharmacists. So we all go, when I say we all, most Muslims just go to Google and look up hadith on a question of the day. And then when you see, oh, this hadith appears in Bukhari, there's no understanding of the categories of what's fake, what's not, what's alleged to be from the Prophet, which is what, what is strongly from the Prophet, what's definitely claimed to be from the Prophet. And even in the strongest hadith, the, the, the muhaddithin or those who collect hadith would always say, oh, kamaqal, or as he allegedly said. So you know, for me, it's, it's bringing back that spirit of critical thought and bringing back the spirit of a, of, of a prophet that's compassionate, kind, logical, thoughtful. And hadith have to be in, uh, in, in keeping with the spirit of the Quran and the but spirit of the prophet. But do you think prophet. you can apply that same spirit to the Quran? What, 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 or is everything in the Quran true? For me as a Muslim, yeah. everything in the Quran is true. But, but, but also the, the biggest reservations and the biggest areas of contention with modernity aren't all in the Quran, most of them, whether it's to do with suicide bombings or yeah. with apostasy or with... Are, uh, are in that. But, are, are, in, are in claims of hadith literature. But, so, there, you know, there, there, there are verses within the Quran as well which have been used to justify war and violence um, or, or indeed slavery, I suppose. Um, I mean, you, you, you say... Um, since the Quran mentions slavery repeatedly, should Muslims reintroduce that practice too? And, and, and ISIS notoriously have responded to that question by saying, yes, we should. And the, and the vast majority of the world's Muslims have disagreed with that, disputed that and rejected that. And there's a, there's a well-established principle from the very early days of Islam and throughout history, and that is the ijma or consensus of the mainstream and the abolishing of slavery I mean, what's interesting is that the early Muslim scholars always looked at what the Prophet tried to do. There was injustice vis-a-vis -vis slavery and the, 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 the attitude were, were was Were there traditions in Islam of criticising slavery as an institution? Or is that something that, that only derives from kind of, you know, 19th century European influence? So that's a great question, Tom. I mean, I, as I cast my mind throughout Muslim history, what you see is an attempt to free slaves. What you see is veneration of those who allow for slaves to be free. Um, but as in Christianity, I mean, the same thing in Christianity that, that with a very few exceptions, there are some who criticise it as an institution. There doesn't seem to be this kind of mental leap that, the, that it's, it's treated as being something like hunger or disease. It's a bat, it's an ill, but it's just something that's there. And then it's, it's really only in the 18th century and 19th century in Europe that you start to get people who say the whole institution should be abolished. Mm -hmm. Because and slavery became something about mass exploitation. I think it always was. But, yeah, so this is the big question. I but, mean, but, most Muslims would say this is the this is the Muslim perfectionist hist history coming in again. That oh, there was no injustice, and therefore, you know, Muslims are very kind to their slaves because the Prophet said to you to be kind. But, but, but I suppose, I mean, I suppose what an ISIS ideologue would say would be that actually this is you know this notion that slavery is 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 evil as an institution and should be abolished is a Western idea that has infected Islam, and that in its classical period, no one had this idea, and so therefore it should be abolished. I mean. That's correct. That is exactly what they will say. That, that, that's why the literalists, that's why the dangerous, that's why they, they go back to this imagined year zero. That's why most Muslims and others disagree with them. But the, implica I mean, the implication is actually a rather hopeful one, that, that, that if you know, the, the vast majority of Muslims accept that, that slavery now as an institution is evil, and yet that is, that is perhaps an idea that has derived from the European tradition, 
then there is scope for a kind of Islam that that that, that welcomes traditions and ideas and thoughts from traditions outside Islam, that it can be integrated into the fabric of you see, the faith. It's revealing to me that you think that that's, uh, that's a big moment because I mean, Islam has always been exactly that, that it's, it, it absorbed from the, the, the Byzantines, it absorbed yes, from I, the Persians. I, I, yes, but, but the reason I say that... Adopted, but the reason I say that, that is, because, is because my understanding of, 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 of how Islam, uh, Muslims classically have understood is Islam, that it is the final revelation, it is the perfect revelation, it's humanity's last chance. Um, and that therefore, in a sense, it is complete. I mean, yes, it's complete in the sense that there's a verse in the Quran where, you know, God says, today I have completed your faith. But I don't think most Muslim scholars thought that every answer to every question was in the Quran. For if that was the case, we would not have developed you know, tens of schools of thoughts on, on jurisprudence and observation and practice. What you have in the Quran are broad-based principles. And one, one of the, the, the greatest beauties of the, the, the Islamic history and its legacy for me is that this focus very early on from Imam Shatibi, Imam al-Juwaini and others in the, in the 10th and 11th century downwards about um, the maqasid of the sharia, the aims of the sharia, the overarching objectives being the preservation of life, the preservation of family, uh, religious worship, the intellect and surprise, surprise, private property. Um, so that's the mainstay of the sharia. That's, that's what we're all supposed to be preserving. Everything else, but you know, whether it's the slavery, whether it's the, any, any, the, the, those are just tactical manifestations that are open to debate and discussion. It's not, it's not a fundamental of Islam. Those five things are the fundamentals. I mean, we spoke about uh, horses and carts previously. I mean, that's the horse. That's what should be front loaded. That those five objectives, and by that measure, what we're seeing in the West is that it's fully in keeping with what it means to be a Muslim. No Muslim is persecuted for being Muslim. Contrast to China, where you cannot observe religious freedom, nor in, in parts, uh, you know, own, own, own property, at least in, in the past. So, you know, you're right that um, there are verses in the Quran, such as slavery, that most Muslims have, have, have thought that that had a specific application at a specific time, and there's a contextual meaning for it. But in today's day and age, it, it, it's not applied because it's thought that the whole point of slavery was that it was time limited. Similarly, in that same vein, I think almost every other Quranic uh, edict that Muslims find to be difficult to observe today, the, there's a scholarly way around it. I mean, this is the beauty of the, of, of the faith, that there, there are answers within it that allow you to adapt to today's reality and continue to be fully Muslim. It doesn't have to be either a suicide bomber or a complete sellout. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, that, that this is true of... of, of Christianity as well as of Islam, that both religions have a kind of um, a moment where the divine ruptures the fabric of the diurnal, you know, be it the incarnation of Christ or be it the revelation of the Quran to, to Muhammad. For believers, there is this decisive moment in the course of world history where kind of everything changes. Um, and in both in both faiths, you have a, a corpus of scripture that enables the faithful to have a sense of, of what it is, you know, the divine is speaking to them. And so I wonder in the present, you, for Muslims and for Christians, is this 
a help in negotiating modernity that you can look back, that you can say, well, you know, we have the example of the, the prophet's life. We have, uh, we have the revelations that were given to him from God. Um, and, and this can provide us with guidance or is it a hindrance because essentially you you know you have you you, you have instincts that are bred of of, of of being born into the 20 you know living in the 21st century and basically you have to go around trying to kind of adjust your inheritance of scripture and tradition to your kind of gut instincts as a liberal but, but, perhaps. but why do you assume that they're just adjusting is somehow problematic well I think I think um, that, that quite a lot of what we've been talking about suggests that it's problematic that you know you've been talking about the, the Hadis, for instance the issues with apostasy or slavery or whatever I mean these are problematic for me I'm not saying that this is exclusive to Islam I mean I I, I, I was talking to Shashi Tharoor yesterday the um, the Indian politician and he was talking about Hinduism and he was saying well yes caste you know it did it, 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 it existed, but it's not really fundamental to, to, to Hinduism. And actually, there are lots of, of uh, verses and passages where uh, the ancient Hindu sages um, <laughs> scorned the idea of caste. And you get Christians who, you know, talking about the issue of homosexuality and saying, "Well, actually, there's a lots in the Bible that would that would support gay marriage." Or you know, the, and what I get with all of this is that. Believers gain immense sustenance from, from, from their faith. And yet at the same time, there is a sense in which that faith is prompting them to kind of soft soap or shove to one side or, or recalibrate elements within that tradition that is problematic f for the way that they see the yeah. world in the 21st sure. century liberal order. Yeah. You see, I mean, inherent in your question is the emphasis on tier two issues as being completely primary and of vital importance to every believer. I mean, whether it's homosexuality or apostasy or uh, I mean, even issues around gender equality, uh, I mean, individual thought, those are tier two issues. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're as, opposed, as opposed to the kind of the blaze of the knowledge of God and... and, the, and tier and, one, yeah. the existence of God, yes. tier one. Yes, that's where it yes. matters. And now, if, if the thrust of modernity was for me to say that there is no divine existence, that there is no divine accountability for my actions, and then you know, there was no divine communication, i.e. revelation didn't happen, that's an issue. And, and that's, you can say, well, oh, you've given up your very basics and your fundamentals. Well, that, that's tier one. And so for every Muslim, Tawheed or the oneness of God, Risala or the communication through the Prophet Muhammad or Akhirah, an afterlife, that's where it's at. Everything else is detailed and open and has always been contested. It's just how contested and when and for what reason. So adapting to a modern world, if that meant my compromising the very three most important uh, facets to my belief system and to who I am, then I'm sorry I can't compromise on on, on God and somehow say, oh, there is no God. Oh, the, yeah. the, so that's what matters to me and I think to most Muslims and to most Christians and other believers, the, the tier one issues. Now, as long as the tier one issues are, are broadly left alone, all the other stuff is quite secondary. The problem with modernity is the secondary stuff is what's primary to modernity. That's the issue. So, you know, if you don't mind my saying so, it's almost that you, you have a modern trained approach to this where you're, you're putting all these contemporary issues out there as an, and yeah. making put well, these are the, the, these are the lightning rods that that you know continue to 
the lightning continues to hit in in Islam and in Christianity and all you know all kinds of religions. So that's that's why I bring them up. And I, I just want you know a slightly more a, perhaps a, 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 a more depressing take on the the prospects for Islam and for um, faiths generally is that might there be a case for saying that there are people who feel that the kind of the liberal take, you know, the liberal manifestation of Islam or Hinduism or Christianity is slightly pallid. Um, and clearly one of the things that religion gives is a sense of belonging to a kind of club. Uh, you know, you, you, you are against the world. You are part of a community. And if you look at, at Islam, you, you, you clearly see that in, in kind of the people we've been talking about, the, the, the Islamists, the radicals. But you also get it in, in Hinduism, that you know, there is a, a much more militant vein of Hinduism now than, than existed previously. You kind of get it in Putin's Russia, where Orthodox Christianity mm. is, 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 is really quite militant these days. Mm. And I wonder, is, is there perhaps a sense in which it's, you know, you might call it the thought for the day approach to religion in which you'll have a, an imam or a vicar or a Hindu priest turn up on the radio for before eight o'clock and, and, and say totally inoffensive things that everyone could agree with. Aren't there people out there who want a bit more red meat? And isn't that something that we're seeing? It's a global phenomenon. It's not just in Islam. The red meat should be on tier two issues. And that's where the red meat happens to be at the moment. And we should that's where we should keep them. For, 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 for the younger rebels, the teenagers, there is a desire to change the world. And there is, and I, and I, so I you're optimistic. That face. Yeah, but I think on balance, people over time, as, as long as... Uh, I'm only optimistic that for as long as those of us who are on the more modernised, thoughtful, pluralist arm of civilization, that we continue to assert our values that we don't give up, that we don't quit, that we don't say that the Islamists and the extremists are somehow right and more authentic as believers. Yeah. Uh, but so, but to, to, to return to the question with which I, I opened, do you think that, you know, the, the fire in the House of Islam can be put out? Uh, the, the House of Islam is on fire at two levels. I, I think in, in the Muslim world, over time, it will be put out because there is a normative default form of Islam. So when you have radicals in Egypt, there are institutions in Egypt, Al-Azhar and others, who will say, you are wrong. And you are wrong because of a thousand years of history, because of Al-Azhar says and what the normative Islam is in Egypt. Now, here in the West, we have a much bigger problem, you know, in excess of 30 million Muslims. And because of the moral relativism that dominates society and everyone's right, translate that into the Muslim community and then, then, and then you have the, the Salafists and the Islamists. Who's to say they're wrong and based on what? And that's the long-term challenge that putting out that fire is going to be much harder because there's no right and there's no wrong, there's no truth and there's no falsity. That whatever the, uh, the extremists say and the Salafis and the, the jihadis say is just as valid as what the Sufis and the secularists say. And as for, for as long as that moral relativism is at play and we don't have the courage to say that, you know what, you're fine if you want to be a Salafi, but we reject the ideas, we mock them, we sideline them. Uh, and if you're a jihadi, you, you will not have uh, refuge and shelter in our communities and in our homes. And history is on our side and the future is on our side. Unless we have that moral conviction, then I fear that that, that part of the House of Islam, i.e. Muslims in the West, will not in any, will not in, in, in any near future 
be, be, be seeing their fire put out. That was Ed Hussein in conversation with Tom Holland. The House of Islam, A Global History, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Bloomsbury. And you can read a version of this interview in issue 11 of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now, and also includes pieces on migration, the civil rights movement, and the history of Brazil, among other things. Look out for it in all good retailers now, or find out more at historyextra.com. And that is about it for today, but please do join us on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.